Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Coming up, crisis in healthcare. Inside the virtual ER, and how much time are we wasting online? But we begin with money matters that might interest you. The Bank of Canada raised its key interest rate by a full percentage point this past Wednesday. That is the largest rate increase in 24 years. To help us understand the impact, the fallout, and ways to survive, we are joined by Lori Campbell. She is the Director of Client Financial Wellness at Bromwich & Smith. Welcome to the feed, Lori. You know, you've been helping us deal with debt, arm ourselves against inflation, and ride the interest rate roller coaster for decades now. What are your thoughts when it comes to the Bank of Canada's stunning announcement this past Wednesday? Well, you know, it's 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 shocking to me, quite frankly, and I mean, we had some inkling that we were looking at about a uh, three quarters of a percent, but we're looking at a full percentage point. And this is the largest amount in, in almost a quarter of a century that the Bank of Canada has risen rates at what in any one time. Why? Why? Why this amount? Why this large increase? Well, you know, I think it's it's a matter of working off that band-aid fast. So they've, you know, we've seen a couple of half percentage uh, points in the past uh, few months, but now this full percent hopefully means that we're not looking at any more increases anytime soon, but they're also matching what's going on in the U.S. And we know that interest rates are climbing dramatically in the U.S. as well. And in order for us to be competitive as a nation uh, and, in, and also to curb this uh, ever-growing inflation, this is what the feds thought they had to do. Mm. Why do they think that raising interest rates will help to bring down inflation? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's usually supply and demand when it comes to inflation. So this is a bit of a double-edged sword this time around with COVID. But the, the hope is that, you know, if you increase interest rates, uh, demand for purchase goes down so people aren't out aggressively purchasing. And we look at the house, you know, skyrocketing housing market as a good example. However... This time around, we've got the double-edged sword, as I mentioned, with COVID. So, unfortunately, demand is going to be, continue to be high, in my opinion, because the supply isn't there for certain items because of COVID. We also got some jobs numbers out recently. 43,000 jobs were lost last month in the month of June. So you put that into this big mix, and it doesn't bode well for the average Canadian. Well, the average Canadian, unfortunately, is going to feel the shock of this quite quickly. And, you know, it's estimated that the average family will need about an extra 400 to $500 per month to wow. cover their costs wow. with this increase on top of the fact that inflation obviously isn't going to go down quickly. I mean, we saw it in May at 7.7%, which was extremely high for one month, and we still have not seen any curb in inflation. So that problem will continue for a while yet. And how long does it take to see the results of this massive increase? So, so how does it work its way through the system and show up? Well, it's going to take months. And the unfortunate reality of it is, is that we're going to see it probably uh, with rising debt, uh, a, a slowing of the housing market, perhaps uh, individuals, you know, owing more than what they pay, or what they pay for their house. That could be very problematic. And because household debt, uh, are so high, uh, this impact 
doesn't have more of a negative than a positive effect overall. Are you talking about a recession? I hate to use the R word, but, um, you know, this might be what we're heading into. I mean, we've got a situation where Canadians already now today owe $1.86 for every dollar they make. Now, let's face it, uh, with these interest rate increases, which mean that, you know, lines of credit automatically, variable rate mortgages, when you go to renew your mortgage, some car loans uh, will be impacted. All of this means that Canadians' ability to service their debt is being slowly diminished. So what a terrible, perfect storm, if you will. And I want to take out the word perfect. What a terrible storm. So Canadians have record high amounts of household debt. Uh, the cost of living is going up, up, up. You look at rent, you look at gas, you look at, at food prices. How does one survive this? Well, you know, you're so correct. I hate it isn't a perfect storm. It's it's a it's a very volatile storm that we're sitting in today. And individuals really need to sit stand back and take a look at their financial situation. And that means talking to you, you and your family about it. You need to make sure you have open conversation with your partner or your spouse about your financial situation. That's number one. You need to develop a budget and I hate using the word budget, yeah. call it a spending plan, on how you're going to manage your money through these difficult times. Take a look at your full debt. Are you in financial difficulty? Get help sooner rather than later, And because what happens to people, as they wait too long, they become desperate, and the interest on this debt continues to accumulate. And they could, you know, be uh, victims of scams that say that they'll help you with your debt immediately or, you know, just pay us a fee and we'll make it go away. And that's not reality. If they want to deal with their debt, they need to go to a licensed solvency trustee, such as Bromwich and Smith, where they can get interest stopped where they can get the full amount of debt that they have possibly reduced by up to 80%. Mm. And, you know, make sure they go someplace that is licensed and legislated by the federal government. How so earth, important how people earth, deal with debt quickly. Sorry to interrupt. How on earth, because you've got me at that reduced debt by 80%, how do you do that? Well, see, with a, a, a licensed insolvency trustee, it's legislated and regulated by the federal government. So you can't have assets, obviously, more than you have in debt. That doesn't work. Um, and your income can't be, you know, uh, over a certain threshold uh, and you're able to get rid of that type of debt. It's for people that really can no longer manage their debt uh, with the income and they have very little assets or the assets don't outweigh that debt repayment to the creditor. So it can be done, but only through a licensed insolvency trustee. All right, let's talk about how this will impact us. And, you know, you think about trying to pay down debt, but the cost of everything is so high, you can't save money. It's hard to find the money to pay down debt. And your future savings, you know, some people are thinking about dipping into their RRSPs or selling their houses in order to, to find the money they need to survive. Exactly. And, you know, the truth of the matter, too, Anne, is that we're just coming out of COVID. You know, thank goodness things have opened up and we're back on track to some state of normal. But people want to go out for dinner. They want to travel. All those things they couldn't do through COVID. And now suddenly they're, they're slammed with this huge uh, inflation that has gone through the roof. And then quite a number of interest hikes that are making it impossible for people to get ahead. So, you know, if, if the plan is to sell the vehicle because, or sell the house, I'm sorry, because there is no ability to continue to service that house, I suggest people get to get on that quickly. The housing market is obviously going to uh, diminish. There will be more supply than demand for housing if 
the interest rates continue to rise because people do not want to purchase when interest rates are high and they're waiting for the housing market to kind of tank or level off before they purchase. So that's number one. Um, if you have uh, two vehicles, can you go down to one? Are there ways of cutting back in your expenses? People, this is not pleasant for any of us. And we're all going to unfortunately have to tighten our belts to go get through this period uh, where we have a little bit of uncertainty and we have unfortunately high, higher interest rates and high inflation until the inflation starts to shrink. And when will we see that? When will we see the effects of, of this, this most recent massive interest rate hike in terms of taming inflation? Well, you know, this is, this is the, the million-dollar question. We've got, unfortunately, the, the fallout of, of a war in Ukraine that has resulted in high oil costs. We've got um, the fallout of COVID, which has resulted in lack of supply for certain products. Uh, we've got the result of, as we mentioned, interest rate hikes, which are supposed to bring down inflation, but it will take, I would suggest, six months to a year to see this start to happen because of these external factors that we really have no control over. And we are the only ones dealing with high inflation rates. Look at, really, it's all around the world in, in, in many cases, including the United States. Most recently, their inflation number for June came out 9.1%. Yes, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not surprising when you think about the way the shelves looked during COVID. I mean, I remember taking a picture of one of the shelves and there's absolutely, you know, in the grocery store, there's absolutely nothing there. And if there's no, and you know, and so what happens is the cost of delivering services because of COVID and because of transportation and all the lockdowns meant that the cost was borne by us, the consumer. Well, we're out of all of that right now to a certain degree, but then we've had these other external factors happen. And also underemployment has been a huge factor for many people. So not only do we have inflation, but we've got people's ability uh, to be able to uh, tackle these extra costs so much diminished. Two tough questions. First of all, what is the Bank of Canada's target inflation rate? And do you think that the next time they meet, I think that it is coming up in September, that we're going to see another big rate hike? Wow, you know, I I think we were all surprised to find out that in this last week we've gone up a full percent. Nobody expected that. Most people thought a half percent. Some would say three quarters percent. So we're all quite surprised about that. What will they do in September? It all depends on how inflation starts to, uh, you know, level off or hopefully diminish slightly by then. If it continues to rise, my fear is we're looking at another hike. I don't think it'll be a four, four percent. I don't think that uh, the economy and the Canadian public can bear that, but uh, it could very well be another half percent. I, I know you don't want to talk about the R word. I don't either, unless it's a different word, but recession. So some economists feel that we're actually in a recession already. Many feel that we are headed that way, and the average individual like myself is just watching the headlines, fearing that R word, that it is imminent. I'd have to say I, I would like to have, you know, my rose-colored glasses on and say that, you know, it's all going to be copacetic after uh, this one big interest uh, hike and, you know, inflation will come down. But uh, I fear that we are going to have somewhat of a recession. Uh, there's too many factors out there that are not working in our favor. And um, I think we all need to take a close look at uh, our financial situations and prepare uh, for this possibility now.
rather than, you know, wait to see it unfold. We're all beginning to understand what inflation is. We're seeing its impact. We're, we're understanding uh, interest rate increases. We don't yet know how it will impact us. What about a recession? How will it manifest itself? What will it look like here in Canada? Well, my, my thought on this is that the housing markets, we're going to see a real huge correction in the housing market. You know, let's face it, the last 10 years, we've seen house, house costs skyrocket and rental costs skyrocket across the country. And so what will happen in a recession is that, you know, again, we're looking at a supply and demand. People retract, uh, the economy retracts. And as such, uh, there's not going to be anybody, uh, it, it, there's not going to be that massive desire to purchase housing as uh, we've seen in the last 10 years. That's that's number one. Number two, of course, is the, the, the job aspects that people have. I mean, recession means that there are layoffs. It means that, you know, uh, we're seeing a massive retraction in spending across the country. And if there's that retraction of spending, uh, we're looking at a situation where we're going to see more businesses close. And we certainly saw this during the recession, during, during COVID. So this is really... These are tough times for Canadians and, and worldwide because of what we've seen overall in the last two years alone. Your best advice as we digest all that you have said and all that is before us. And, and you know, I too want to put on rose-colored glasses, but I can't find them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> They're in the bottom of the drawer somewhere. <laughs> uh, so first of all, my best advice, Anne, is that People remember they're not alone. You're not alone with your financial situation. There are a lot of people out there struggling just like you. And, you know, we, we told our society, we, as a society, we tell ourselves, don't talk about debt, don't talk about money. We need to, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. We need to open up about it. People need to know they're not alone. Get the right help. Don't go online to some fly-by-night company. Go to a licensed insolvency trustee. Get the right help for your debt situation. That's number one. Number two, you know, Start now. Look at your financial situation now before, you know, we possibly hit that recession mode that, that could be happening in the next 6 to 12 months and put money away for a rainy day. Make sure you retract in your, in your spending so that you're prepared for this and you know what's ahead of you. And, and most importantly, have a conversation. Open up the talk about money, about finances, about debt so that you and others around you feel like they're not alone. I have to slip in one more question, and it's a tough one. It's a, it's a terrible question, but declaring bankruptcy, is that sort of a final option? It, it certainly is. And, you know, as tough as the question is, it's a relief for so many people that have been struggling for so long. Uh, you know, people feel so embarrassed about this, but it could happen to anybody. It could be health problems. It could be a marital breakdown. It could be job loss. I mean, anything could happen to you that results in you having financial struggles. And, you know, you shouldn't feel embarrassed about it. You shouldn't be ashamed of it. And you shouldn't really wait until your situation explodes. Get some advice early on so you can make an educated decision on how you best should proceed. I think your best advice, the one that I take away from this conversation, is that you're not alone, and, and, and that's very comforting. And thank you so much for terrific information. Lori Campbell, Director of Client Wellness, Bromwich & Smith, we will be talking again. I know it. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Anne. A lot of employers are now focused on maintaining a productive remote workforce. With the trends, here's Kevin Frankish. 
Robert Hosking, Senior Regional Director at Robert Half, talking to me right now in the feed about a recent study that looks how remote work is impacting productivity, and boy, do we need studies like this. Hello, Robert. Hello. So let's first of all, tell me a little bit about the study itself. Sure. So we uh, conducted a survey, uh, just over 500 professionals in Canada, to talk about productivity and any impact uh, as it relates to productivity as a result of either working remotely versus uh, those that maybe are in office and uh, any variance or change around that. And I I think what we found particularly interesting is that uh, the peaks in productivity remained very much the same as they did in 2000 or were in 2019 when we conduct a similar survey at a time when most people were actually in an office compared to now when many still are either hybrid fully remote or uh, are partially back in. Where are we right now? Uh, I know that we've had a lot of companies that are insisting their employees come back to work. I mean, look at Elon Musk demanding that people head back into the office. Where are we in returning to the office right now, in your opinion? There's definitely a, a variation and a real spectrum. Uh, to, you know, when, when we take a look or, or have uh, had conversations with many organizations about their plans, uh, there's many that have netted right in the middle, uh, which is uh, a few days a week or recommending a few days a week uh, that uh, that employees are in. Some have designed or picked the days of the week that they think may work best for everybody to be in on those days. But there are certainly organizations that have decided they can be fully remote or employees can work fully remote, uh, come into the office with purpose uh, for meetings or collaborative time or those types of things, but otherwise work fully remote. And then there definitely are organizations that have really asked their employees to be back in five days a week. And and in some cases that's required based on the kind of work that individuals may be doing. Uh, But uh, uh, in other cases, it's it's really to align with that organization and that's what they uh, would like to see moving forward. We know one of the hardest things, though, is employee discipline, your self-discipline and working from home. How do you stop yourself from getting distracted? How do you remain productive? Because that line between work time and home time becomes quite blurred. What kind of concern was that for the professionals you talked with? Definitely a uh, there's def- definitely a challenge, and uh, and I think um, certainly during uh, those peaks of COVID when everybody was working remote and uh, everybody was really confined to their homes, uh, um, it was really easy for the day to get away from people. Uh, getting up in the morning at the same time didn't have a commute, so jumping right into work, right the very first thing they did, and not taking the appropriate breaks, uh, not necessarily ending the day at a reasonable time because there wasn't a whole lot else to do. Uh, and uh, uh, that's changing and, and for, for the better, certainly, uh, now that uh, there aren't as many restrictions and, and people certainly can do other things outside of the home, but there's still it's still required that that balance is there. So uh, taking those those breaks, uh, building those into your day, making sure that uh, you're going into the day with a plan um, so that you know what your day can look like, not overbooking, uh, and then also making sure that you're managing those other meetings that um, often get dropped into your calendar and uh, people just anticipate, oh, you'll be available at this time. Taking control of your own day and managing it versus having others manage it is really important. It is, it's important some, for some people to get away from home where, you know, you, you, are, you may not be happy in your home life or may not be happy in your work life. Now, they're sort of one and the same. 
Right. Exactly. And that, and that is, and that definitely, I think many people experience challenge during uh, the last couple of years with that, finding that, uh, that balance and not having anywhere else to go. Uh, and, uh, and so therefore now choosing maybe to go back into an office and, uh, um, and or breaking their, their week up so that some days in the office, maybe some days not. Making sure you've got, if you are uh, working remotely, uh, a separate workspace where you can really go and, and that's your own your own space, if possible. Uh, and uh, um, having your things there so you're set up in such a way that it feels as though you're in the office or you're in your workspace uh, without the other distractions that may actually come from being in the house and uh, and things that can happen. You know, even just the ringing of the doorbell as something's being delivered when you're on a critical call can really be disruptive. So uh, making sure that uh, that private separate space is really key. And as a manager, you're going to have to be a different kind of manager. Uh, the way you keep tabs on those who are under you, the way to keep tabs on productivity, it's all going to be changed. Absolutely. You know, and it's, uh, and, and, and certainly that sense of uh, micromanagement, you know, in, in sort of the pre-COVID, that was often uh, a term that was often used. And when everybody is all of a sudden working remotely, you're not in a position to be able to see necessarily what everybody's doing every minute of the day. So leading with trust is really important uh, and trusting that people will do what they need to do um, if they have a plan, making sure that um, communication is strong, uh, setting up those expectations right from the very beginning of what's expected of individuals and uh, on the team and what do the results look like. It's really leading or managing around results um, versus around metrics uh, um, and the, uh, the elements that need to get to the end result are certainly important, but focusing on uh, what's the result at the end of the day and continuing to encourage their teams to balance um, and have that work-life balance, take vacation, take the time they need, the breaks that they need, uh, lead with empathy as it relates to that. It's really important um, in, in, this, uh, in this world when we're not necessarily together as we once were uh, in an office space where you can see it. It's really important to be communicating it and keeping your eyes on any signs of burnout or any concern around uh, around that with individuals. This is something I've never really heard addressed before, but do you think that we are going to have to change the way our educational institutions teach business uh, to, to include working remotely? It, it's absolutely, it's a great, it certainly brings up a great question because the world of business has changed mm -hmm. uh, and the ways that organizations um, run the business is different today than it was a few years ago. And, and you're right, uh, programs, courses, training was designed around that way of work and it's certainly changed and I don't suspect it's changing back to certainly where it was pre-COVID anytime soon and likely never again. So, you know, it's not necessarily the, we often talk about this is the new way of work. Uh, this is the reality um, of, of work today. And, uh, and so I think that there will need to be changes all along. And certainly from a business perspective, I think companies are constantly realizing that, that it's changing so quickly, taking a step back and re-looking at it, you may need to uh, uh, divert or change course every once in a while as well, um, because this will, is very fluid and will continue to be. Uh, it's interesting that you did a similar survey in 2019 before uh, the pandemic, and a lot of people are, are sort of putting, uh, you know, the blame on the pandemic for rushing us along. Do you think that we were that that working remotely and the benefits from it 
were going to be inevitable? It, it just got rushed along a bit, or did did the pandemic change the game at all? It definitely moved it along more quickly. There were individuals and, and certainly companies that were more open to partial remote work or some people that may have worked one day a week from home uh, leading into it. Uh, this changed the game in the sense that certainly COVID did that everybody all of a sudden had to work remote in, in, in many industries, not all obviously, um, but in many industries where they could work remote. Uh, and that has changed the way employees think um, about being the, the need or the, the sense that they need to be back in an office. Uh, if it worked well and I was productive and I was achieving my goals and I hit my results and everything looked good, why would I need to come back in to an office environment where maybe I'm actually less productive um, and or there is more distraction um, than when I'm now set up at home in a way that's working really well for me. And so uh, it, that has changed that certainly uh, long term. And, and I again, don't see that ever coming back um, because many people prefer that uh, remote uh, world where um, they have that flexibility, they can manage the day they, they, the way they need to work it. Some people work well first thing in the morning, getting up early, starting their day early, but wrapping up earlier. Um, others may find that a slower start in the beginning of the day, but they're very comfortable and feel they're very productive working later in the day or taking a break, um, dealing with something from a personal perspective and coming back and then resuming work where they wouldn't have necessarily had that flexibility in the past. So it, it certainly has changed the game from, from that perspective. All right, and uh, I really look forward to your next study. I, I think that, uh, that once we sort of settle in post-pandemic, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what another study does uh, in relation to the, to the past two that you've done. Right, agreed. It's it's, uh, it's always interesting, and as I, I, I truly believe it's uh, we're in a very uh, say sort of fluid world today, where things are changing rapidly, and uh, be very interesting to see the results and and how companies adapt to that over the next while. Robert Hosking, senior regional director at Robert Half. Thank you for this. Thank you very much. My pleasure. After the break, crisis in the ER. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Emergency room physicians are urging both provincial and federal governments to truly tackle Canada's shortfall of health care workers that has resulted in the temporary closing of some emergency departments. Imagine this. You or someone you love is in need of urgent care and the sign outside the ER says closed early or shut down entirely. Dr. David Carr is a renowned emergency physician, a clinical investigator, also an associate professor of emergency medicine, all with the University Health Network. Thank you, Dr. Carr, for joining us on the feed. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. May I begin by reading some startling facts to you that our team here at 105.9 The Region has uncovered? For sure. Okay, so 
the average wait time to be admitted to hospital here in Ontario through the emergency department is a shocking 20 hours. That's a record high. Ontario has the fewest number of hospital beds in Canada. Poor wages and working conditions here in Ontario are 20 times more likely to be the reason for healthcare workers quitting than vaccine mandates. Those are pretty, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Those are pretty sad statistics. What is your take on why we are in crisis in terms of our healthcare, but in particular, our ER here in Ontario? Yeah, and I, I think that if you, if you and I had this discussion three summers ago, I would have talked about a crisis in the ER. I think what's now happened in this post-COVID state is it's really been come to the forefront as there's been a lot of new factors that have been introduced. I, I think if you kind of summarize exactly what you just said, there's really two poignant facts. We have a major crisis in human resources, and we have a major crisis in terms of timely access to hospital beds. The human resource crisis is really doctors and nurses, and I think people also don't realize that they often think hospitals are about doctors, but hospitals don't run unless you have the nursing and healthcare team support to run hospitals. That's why a lot of these places are closing. What is at issue then? Why are there so few doctors and nurses available at this point, whether it's by choice or by some other method? Why are are we so understaffed? We'll treat those groups separately. With regards to nursing, and, and I'm not a nurse, but I can speak and advocate for the profession, there's been a Bill 124 that has kept their wages really frozen for quite some time. And I think that the government in Ontario, per se, and I'm speaking uh, in this province, has maybe not recognized this commitment and sacrifice to nurses. And I think for nurses, they've just kind of said, why would I work in the emergency department where I'm underpaid, I'm abused emotionally, it's draining, it's hard. There are other places for me to go and there's other jobs to do. For doctors, um, there's just been much like nurses, I think the emotional toll of the last two and a half years and the burnout has compounded to the fact that people just are looking to do other things. So how is it that emergency rooms, emergency services, urgent care takes a beating in a case like this? They're shutting down early. They're shutting down for days at a time. And and that's a shocking scenario here in Ontario. Yeah, it's incredibly frightening. And, you know, one of the things that we know specifically in York Region is people don't have primary care access. I think you have to realize that if you don't have a family doctor and you don't have access to that family doctor and you're orphaned, so to speak, you have nowhere to turn to. And the emergency department has always been a safety net for patients, a 24-7, 365 model. And we've kind of geared our focus to look after everything. I don't believe we're any longer capable to look after everything anymore. We just don't have the infrastructure, the hospital beds to solve the whole province's problems. Apparently, we rank seventh among Canadian provinces in the number of family doctors per 100,000 patients. So it, it goes directly with what you were saying that there, it's just there's sort of missing links when it comes to the, this healthcare system right now. Yeah, I mean, people want to kind of blame family doctors, and I'm not blaming family doctors. I'm blaming the number of family doctors, and that is not on the individual. It really has to be about a system to say, how do we encourage people to do family medicine? How do we make it an attractive specialty? How do we strengthen our primary care? 
be it more advanced practice practitioners, such as nurse practitioners, be it more funding for family medicine and family medicine teams. But the current model just isn't working. You are an emergency physician, emergency medicine physician. What's it like for you to be in a situation or to hear that an emergency room somewhere in Ontario, like Perth or Listowel, has shut down for days at a time? Yeah, I mean, it's a terrible thing to listen to. Summers have always been a problem. Remember, we have a large country and a large province, and addressing rural medicine has always been a problem. You now add the human resources element with burnout and stuff, and clearly it's not shocking to any of us that there are, um, you know, vacancies in that people aren't able to go to their local emerge. It's heartbreaking. It's incredibly frightening. You know, we just had a, uh, a power outage not too long ago in terms of our, an internet provider, and I was just crippled at the concept that 911 wasn't um, a service for all people in, in Canada. I also can't imagine what it's like to show up to the door, like you mentioned, and it being closed. Yeah. Like, that's so foreign. I work in downtown Toronto, so that's not the reality. But I'm hearing about closures of urgent cares in Brampton. It's moving closer to the core. It's really everywhere. Dr. Carr, the premiers wrapped up a meeting earlier this week, and one of the takeaways was they would like the feds to increase funding to 35% from the current 22% when it comes to our health care system. Is it as simple as that, throwing money at the problem? It's going to help. It's going to be about financially getting the funding, but it's more going to be about how do you target and how do you utilize the funding you receive? I mean, just putting money on the problem isn't going to solve it. It's going to be have to be done with incredible advisors and really look at a holistic approach to how to solve this problem. You know, we can't even incentivize doctors to, and nurses to work on many shifts. It's just people really don't want to work. It's a really deep problem. It's not a micro problem. It's a macro problem and really have to take a whole systems approach but increasing federal transfers is an important first step. From your perspective, what should be done now, short-term and long-term, to fix this problem? So, and and let me qualify who I am. I'm an emergency physician. I'm not a public health expert. I, I think the emergency medicine problem probably needs to incentivize nursing financially to keep them on board, to incentivize people to stay put, to reward the sacrifices of healthcare workers that have happened in the last couple years to boost morale and to encourage people to have an incentive emotionally and physically to show up to work. And then the long-term solution has to go about how do we deal with long COVID? You know, how do we deal with um, backups and backlogs of people who just haven't been cared for And that's going to take a real systems approach to invest in primary care, to have more urgent cares funded, and probably increase the sizing of our nursing and physician pool by either taking in international talent or certainly increasing class sizes in the profession. How important or destructive has the pandemic been to the morale inside an emergency room? Yeah, unprecedented. I mean, I've been an emergency physician for 20 years. we've just started to accept a new norm of just mediocrity and that, you know, when you hear stories on social media or Twitter of someone saying, yeah, I waited 10 hours, it's kind of like to all of us, we're like, yeah, I get it. Like, that's what happens every day. And when you hear about these times, I mean, 
people are waiting and waiting and waiting. And there's much fear amongst the privileged who take vacations to say, crap, I had to wait and show up four hours early to uh, Pearson Airport in Toronto to board my flight to Europe. I think people have to prioritize and see what it's like to come to a hospital and understand how terrible it is to wait so many hours. And I think when people will see that, they need to be active and engage their local politicians to say, this is not sustainable. Let's advocate. We can't do this. Let's put our attention here. Are you fearful that there might come a time when a patient who really needs urgent care might say, no, I'm not going to go through waiting 20 hours at at an an emergency uh, room or in an emergency room in a hospital? I'm just going to try to ignore this. And that happens every day. It's been happening a long time. We have delayed presentation of illness. People don't have timely access to care. They show up to the emergency department too late. We have such a high rate of what we call LAMA, LAMAs, left against medical advice, people who just can't wait. Young mothers who are there with a sick child but have two other kids at home and a job to go to. We just have a system where people are leaving without getting the care they need. This fear is already recognized by all of us who do what I do on a daily basis. We are being told and cautioned that there will be another big wave in the fall. We're apparently in a wave right now, but another big one in the fall. And uh, health authorities are saying, be, be prepared. What does that mean to NER? Yeah, we've been surfing these waves time and time again. I think whatever waves we have will not have patient burdens like we've had in the past because we have excellent vaccination rates in Ontario, and we've also had a lot of people who've acquired immunity naturally. I think the reality is with every subsequent wave, you're not only losing patients, but you're losing healthcare workers. And we can't afford to keep crippling our labor force. With every wave comes a loss of personnel. And every day I show up to battle with nurses that I don't know who don't typically work in the emergency department, who don't typically work where I work and don't know the system. So it's kind of like having a supply teacher and that day just doesn't function the way it should by what the typical teacher would do. And going to battle with people who are incredibly skilled emergency nurses or have that experience is very hard for me. And this is something I deal with on a day-to-day basis. Very, very scary. It doesn't seem fair to you, to other emergency doctors, physicians, to nurses, but also to patients and the public. Just none of this seems fair. And we live in Canada, one of the most forward-thinking and richest nations in the world. How can this be happening? Yeah, it's been a perfect storm that's been going for a while. What we don't discuss is this: there's this geriatric tsunami that my patients, the baby boomers, are getting old. And that chunk of the workforce has retired. Some of it um, was uh, happened quicker because of COVID. But you have all these healthcare workers who've left the field, and you have all these 75 to 85s who are getting old. And to take care of that aging population was always going to throw us a curve based on our hospital beds per capita. Now, we're really in trouble. And I think the next five to ten years before the baby boomers are, that generation is no longer with us, I think it's going to be a real struggle in medicine. And emergency medicine is the barometer of healthcare in this province. 
Dr. David Carr, renowned emergency physician, UHN, thank you so much for your thoughts, your words here on the feed. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Could a virtual ER help? Jim Lang is our tour guide. Well, Dr. Samir Masood is the University Health Network's Director of ED Quality, Safety, and Innovation, and he is part of an innovative new program called Virtual Emergency Department, and he joins us today here at 105.9 of the Region. Dr. Masood, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. I'm fascinated by the whole concept of the Virtual Emergency Department. I guess to start off, why is there a need for a virtual ED? Uh, sure. Uh, that's a great question and often something we, you know, encountered a lot when we first launched the initiative. And it's a little bit counterintuitive. You know, when we think of emergency medicine or emergencies, we often think of patients who are very sick. They need to be in the ER right away, need to be in a stretcher, need intervention right away. But the reality is, you know, half the patients we see, in fact, are not that specific population. They have lower acuity complaints. You know, they are what we call the walking wounded patients. And, you know, the vast majority of these patients with, you know, relatively mild symptoms end up going home. About 80% of these patients are discharged home with a prescription or a referral or a specific intervention or sometimes just reassurance. And so we recognize that as, you know, as COVID kind of came about and we had difficulty with managing volumes, especially with, you know, a lot of the infection prevention control restrictions. So we had to have another alternative for patients to access care, especially that population that's lower risk that can wait at home. Um, to to try and get to, to you know, try and get their services. So that's how the sort of came about, and that's sort of the rationale behind it. Was there a tipping point for you personally, Dr. Masood, either pre or during the pandemic, where you thought we have to come up with a different solution to relieve the backlog and uh, ED departments across the province? Um, you know, it's interesting. You know, I've actually thought of the virtual ER well before COVID. Oh, and uh, you know, we always had discussions about this for a long time. But there was never that sort of burning fire or the impetus or the funding or, you know, the infrastructure to be able to do that. You know, it's been around in, in Europe and parts of North America for quite a while. And we've been a bit behind when it comes to something like this. And so when COVID came about, we actually had that impetus. We had that burning fire to kind of get the initiative going and, you know, line up all of our ducks in, in a row. So that's sort of what uh, actually happened at the start of the pandemic. And initially, it was less about the backlog. It was actually more about the entity, you know, COVID fears where patients who were sick, um, you know, were scared of coming to the ER, understandably so, because they were scared of acquiring COVID, waiting in the waiting room, or interacting with another patient or, or a healthcare provider. And so that's how we started this, to actually encourage patients to come and seek care, to at least get a consultation or an opinion to say, do you need to go to the ER, or can you do something else virtually, or see your family physician or special? So that was the initial idea behind it. Then as the pandemic kind of obviously unfolded, and the state we're in now, which is, a lot of overcrowding and backlog, you know, now it's sort of an access point for patients as well who, you know, don't want to wait for a long time or can't wait for a long time because they have a variety of reasons. Could it be a disability? They're not feeling well. They have issues with getting to the ER, so on and so forth. So it's had sort of different faces over the course of the pandemic. Um, and so I can't say, you know, it's, it's a, it's a single, uh, single angle that sort of actually made us do this, but it's actually a variety of different reasons that sort of made it, made it uh, you know, sort of a common sense uh, initiative. Indeed. Speaking with Dr. Samir Masood, who's the University Health Network's Director of ED Quality, Safety and Innovation. Before we get to the nuts and bolts about how it all works and how as a patient you can access it, I guess for a lot of listeners, they wonder, will this help alleviate the backlog? Because you alluded 
to it that ED departments across the province and the GTA in New York region, everyone's like, I, they're at the breaking point. So will something like this actually relieve and give some much needed relief to doctors and nurses who are working themselves to the bone in these departments? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And the answer, I think, to that is a little bit convoluted. I mean, the first thing we've got to recognize is that ED overcrowding is multifactorial. And you know, I'm not an expert when it comes to ED overcrowding, but you know, there's many, many reasons for that, including obviously the pandemic, but burnout and, you know, the backlog from the pandemic and so on and so forth. Um, the virtual EDSA is an access point for patients. It provides another avenue for access, but it's still in its infancy. You know, we're still not seeing, you know, really, really high numbers just based on our current sort of utilization and what we're able to offer patients. We see about, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 patients a year. You know, an average emergency department sees 100,000 patients sometimes a year. And so oh. it's a small number. It's a drop in the bucket when it comes to the overall problem. But I think it has the potential to provide patients with more access. You know, whether it's going to, you know, take away burnout and provide us with some respite, probably not. I mean, the reality is the same providers were seeing patients in person that are seeing patients virtually. And so we've actually gotten stretched even more thin by doing something like this. But I think it's in the interest of patient care. It does, you know, save the healthcare system costs and, you know, makes the lives of a lot of patients easier. So I think, you know, it's, it's certainly got the potential, but I don't think we have sort of the, you know, the, uh, the silver bullet yet, right. if you will, for overcrowding through this. So, okay, so I wake up one day, I'm like, I don't feel well, or something hurts, or something's not right, and I thought, I'm going to go to the virtual ED, log onto my computer, and then what are the next steps after that? Yeah, so the first thing is, you know, we have a common website for the Toronto region, which combines the forces of, you know, not just UHN, but other hospitals in the area as well. And when you get to that website, you've got a screening questionnaire to go through and say, do you have a condition, for example, that's urgent, but it's not life-threatening? Like, you're not having a heart attack, you're not having a stroke, for example, or a serious infection. In those situations, obviously, you should call 911. That's the direction we get patients up front. And the second thing to consider is, well, if you've got something mild, can you see your family physician instead? Do you have access to a family doctor, you know, the same day or the next day, relatively soon? And if not, then we say, okay, we're probably the right you know, a service for you, if you will. Um, and then you go through a set of questions to ensure that you're eligible for that specific consultation and you have a variety of booking time slots to choose from. And you're booked in for the same day. Typically, it's within three to four hours. Uh, each consultation is about 20 to 30 minutes in length. You're seen by a virtual physician, usually by video in most situations, sometimes by audio, depending on your preference and what you've got available. And that's it. And then you can decide with the physician if there's, you know, some other initiative or intervention that has to be done, perhaps a prescription for something, you've got a referral that needs to be done, um, maybe you've got to go to the ER in person. So there's a variety of different, you know, pathways that come about once you've had a consultation. But that's the general sort of way of doing it. Now, even though you've got access to a website, you know, we recognize that a lot of patients don't necessarily have access to the internet or a cell phone or a computer. And we also have the option to call in. So you can mm -hmm. call in and you can also book an appointment that way as well. The website is torontovirtualed.ca. And Dr. Masuda, I think a lot about what you're talking about is in Canada, we're blessed with so much cutting-edge, world-class technology and brilliant minds coast-to-coast. Coast. And I think it's a great marriage of the two of the, you know, the tech, we have these tech hubs all over the region, all over the country. And with these brilliant medical minds, why not make the most of it, combine the two and provide better health care for people in the country? Absolutely. And that's certainly an interest of mine is how do we have the best technology intersect with healthcare to provide patients and providers with, you know, more accurate data and better decision making. So that's certainly, I think, the, this is the start of it. You know, right now we're seeing patients in a relatively simple fashion where they're looking at video consultation. We see them, but I think the future is a little different. You know, the future is how do I get information from you ahead of time? How do I know what your heart rate is? 
I don't know what your temperature is um, while you're sitting at home. So there's a lot of these different ideas that are eventually, hopefully, going to be, you know, consolidated into this. Um, we're at the start of it, like I said, and I think once we've established and, and demonstrated feasibility, which I think we have now, we're now looking at expanding the scope and looking at some of these more innovative ideas so we can really provide comprehensive care. How do we do outpatient lab tests the same day and x-rays the same day and, and get your vital signs the same day? How do we coordinate with the paramedic services? So there's a lot of these different ideas where I think we can become a hub for. Um, but like I said, we're in, we're in the infancy. It'll take us a bit of time. But I think we're, we're in the right direction. And I think the potential, Dr. Masood, I, I think about this, and I'm, I've dealt it with my mother-in-law who has Alzheimer's. She's in a long-term care home. That hallway medicine that I, I'm, I know for a fact that doctors and nurses hate it as much as family members and patients. And maybe this alleviates some of that where you're not clogging up in an emergency department in your local hospital for something that is maybe go to a walk-in clinic or something else. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's part of, you know, what we you know, want to accomplish is, you know, we provide some consultation before you make that decision to go to the ER. Again, in those, you know, subset of patients who aren't very sick. And if you're not sure, this is why we're there. You connect with us. We can sometimes, you know, address the issue ahead of time, just virtually. And sometimes we can facilitate what's going to happen in person. So we may say, yes, you've got to go to the ER, but let me actually organize some of your care ahead of time um, so that your weight over there is shorter and it's, you know, it's less, uh, less convoluted. So there's, there's a lot of potential there. I think yeah, these are ideas that are sort of, you know, that still need to be implemented. But that's the future is how do we start your care from home where you spend the majority of your time as opposed to when you walk into the four doors of a hospital? How do we start that journey of care from home? And then if there is a transition that needs to be made to the hospital, make that as smooth as possible so you're not there waiting, you know, kind of uh, without a lot of information for hours and hours. Well, let me say, Dr. Masood, Meredith Gray has nothing on you. I mean, I watch Gray's Anatomy a lot, but you seem to be a lot smarter. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks for flattering me. Oh, no problem. Get all the details at torontovirtualed.ca. Dr. Samir Musud, University Health Network's Director of ED Quality, Safety, and Innovation. And I guess that's one of the things we always talk about. Technology is ever-changing, and I would think medical technology and how we deliver healthcare is changing at the same rapid lightning speed that technology is. Am I correct? Absolutely. And I think COVID and, and this specific aspect has been a bit of a you know bonus in terms of you know, us being able to sort of really push through a lot of new technology. Um, so I think there, there's some good that's come out of it, uh, at least in this specific sector. Fantastic. Dr. Masood, thank you so much for doing this. All the best with this new initiative, and I think it's going to make a big difference for healthcare in this province, in this country. Uh, a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. When we come back, how much is too much time online? Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Have you ever stopped to figure out how much time you're spending online? Tina Cortez with what the survey says. A new study shows that Canadians spend more than 49 hours a week online. With more key findings from this survey is Adrianus Warminghoven. He is defensive strategist at NordVPN. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. So 49 hours a week, that's more than two days per week on the internet. Yes. What's the breakdown over a year or a lifetime? Uh, over a, a lifetime, it's almost 22 years of your life that you spend online on that. Yeah, that, 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 that's really significant amount. Were you surprised by the findings? 
Um, having uh, grown up uh, without any internet, uh, yes, uh, certainly uh, did. It, it, it's uh, a substantial uh, part of your life. Um, it also means that we should find meaning in, in, in those hours we spend online, mm-hmm. not just whiling away them. And so let's talk about some of the specifics. What time do yes. Canadians start their day online and what time do they wrap it up? Um, according to, the, to our study, uh, which we have uh, had conducted uh, around uh, a quarter to nine or 8.47 on, on average, but it's, it's about a quarter to nine, they start uh, being online, most of them. And uh, almost at uh, 9.30 uh, in the evening, they'll, they'll stop. So it, it's covers the day, uh, most of the daytime and the daylight actually quite well. And how are they spending their time online? What exactly is happening? What are they doing? Is it for work? Is it for school? Is it for entertainment? There's some some really interesting findings in in different countries uh, in there, but let's talk about Canadians. Um, Canadians, most of them uh, are actually like cinephiles or uh, watching videos and and, and television series. Um, It's almost uh, eight hours and and 19 minutes um, a week. And the next thing is uh, watching YouTube a lot and, and, well, we even saw that um, they won't stop watching YouTube even when they go to the toilet. Hmm. Next is social media, and then I see that um, Canadians don't use it so much for music or life administration, which I find uh, interesting. Uh, life administration is like banking, um, your online accounts, uh, all those kind of things. Canadians spend uh, approximately two hours a week on, on life administration. So that, that that's quite different from from, from their video habits. Last week, more than 10 million Canadians experienced a lengthy network disruption affecting internet and cell service. Do you think if these types of issues continue to happen, the Canadians will be forced to change their online habits? It might, but it, uh, it also changes a bit on how you can do business. If you do, uh, Canadians, I don't think, uh, are affected so much with their uh, life administrations, seeing that, uh, as opposed to some other countries, they spend a little less time on life administration. Um, but for the entertainment values, uh, they might, if, if this happens too often, might switch back to uh, downloaded or offline um, video consumption or entertainment consumption. Um, for online shopping, where everything has to be um, synchronous, that would be a nuisance. Now, how do Canadians ensure that their time online is productive and secure? For things that, um, for productivity, um, they should really focus on, on, on what goals they have online. Um, and they also should uh, watch out for time wasters, especially the, the, the YouTube videos. Um, and you know, uh, YouTube videos come from vile from social media. Uh, look at this, look at this, and then, and then before you know it, you're in the rabbit hole, so you, your whole day is gone. Um, so watch out for the time wasters. And also, be careful about any links that you might be sent, because when you're in the habit of clicking links all the time because there's nice videos, it might also be a phishing uh, link, or it might even be a malware link something uh, which is uh, bringing something really evil and nasty to your uh, device. Um, one thing we always uh, say um, at uh, NordVPN is also use a VPN, not so much because we make VPNs, but a VPN protects your uh, connection 
to the end site. If you're uh, uh, on a public uh, transport or if you're at a library or if you're at, I don't know, any of the eateries uh, that have public Wi-Fi, um, you should really protect your uh, internet uh, connection. And of course, use things like password managers um, and really have some hygiene, just like you have with uh, your normal physical life, have some digital hygiene as well. So for those who are not aware, what exactly is a VPN and why the hesitation about using public Wi-Fi? What could that do to our own service? Yes. Um, if you're using a public Wi-Fi, that means that uh, your connections to other machines or other servers or websites online um, are not um, private. It means that at the very least, the administrator of the public Wi-Fi could see uh, to which sites you are connecting. But if it gets even worse, there might be errors in, in, in some of the websites. It means that somebody could break in and listen in to your connection uh, and even add some malware or other um, nasty stuff. Um, or they could just uh, read your credentials, read your credit card or anything like that. What a VPN actually does is it wraps around uh, your connection and protects the data until it gets to its destination site. So it really is like an, an armored transport for your uh, traffic for your destination site. It means even when you're on the public uh, Wi-Fi or um, you're using uh, somebody else's hotspot, it means nobody else can watch it and nobody can else uh, can interfere with your uh, connections. So what do you think it's going to be like for us in the future? I can't imagine that we're going to be using the Internet any less. If we're not, what advice do you have going forward? The first thing is get some habits in, in, in uh, just like you have with, with your normal day-to-day uh, uh, -day routines. You have day-to-day uh, -day routines for cleaning up uh, your house, uh, for cleaning up your toilets, cleaning up your uh, kitchen sink. Get those habits uh, uh, as well for you uh, um, in the digital world. And with those, uh, you can start with using a password manager for your credentials. So you have one safe place where you store everything. Um, you have a VPN for your connection. So whenever you go out, you still are protected with uh, your connection. You always have to watch out, stay vigilant. It, it's like crossing the street. You look left, right, left, um, at least in Europe. <laughs> um, and the same thing goes on for the online world as well. If you get a link, you check the link, you check if it's a redirection, so stay vigilant. A lot of your normal physical habits, you should transfer to, to the uh, digital world as well. And really use a VPN, and if you use NordVPN, we also have some threat protection products which uh, block some trackers for you, which uh, check for malware. Um, so it's a bit more than, than, than just a VPN. Where can our listeners find more information? It's at nordvpn.com, that's N-O-R-D-V-P-N dot C-O-M. And uh, we have lots uh, of, of actions and, and, and uh, uh, vouchers, so please visit the site for most up-to-date prices. Great, thank you for your time. You're welcome. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.